1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
0: Hey, so Aaron, we were just joined by Ron Rohrbaugh. Am I pronouncing that right? You got it right at the start. Yeah, Rohrbaugh. And Ron has a couple of books out. Uh, One of them that I was really interested in, Echo, is about a kid growing up in the outdoors in an outdoors family and to me that's a great topic of conversation because it's obviously something we all need to be focused on as much as possible but then there was the trad- traditional bow hunting as well and you as a bow hunter and big game hunter i know that was kind of uh, interest to you
2: yeah and i think the i i think it was even a little more interesting what you first touched on because there's not you don't see much riding aimed at young people to get them hunting and think conservation and things like that. It's kind of it's a little bit academic in a lot of ways, right? It's like you need to do something specific or in conservation or or it's just stories about hunting. So I was happy about that. And um the big game stuff obviously is cool to talk about. And I, I think, you know, I don't know if we got enough time to get into it, but that connection between burgers and how they see the world and and hunting and man, I just I just love watching critters, whether they're birds or, or animals or whatnot. So I, I just, I I make, I put the two together a lot when I get my binos out and I go look at the deer, or I get my binos out and I go look at the jays or whatever it is. So I really liked exploring that with him a little bit. And, you know, I think the back to the land stuff is, is just really, you can't talk about it enough. It's, I think it's what we need. I think it's our savior. I think it's what, you know, keeps us on this planet is if we finally get back to some of our traditional skills and living off the land and, you know, using less and those kinds of things. So I'm happy to help illuminate that discussion a bit too. Just the appreciation of the land and of wild
0: places and of our natural resources. Uh, Too many people never get outside their little four-walled city and you know, they, they don't see it. So anything we can do to get more people aware of what's out there is a plus.
2: Yeah. So check it out. We talked with Ron Rohrbon. He's an author. He's written a ton in uh, traditional bow hunter magazine and he's written the traditional bow hunters path, this book. And then these, the series of living wild with the Orion's aimed at young people. And he does some work with Autobahn and uh, just an interesting guy. And we hope you enjoy this conversation. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle here with my buddy Bill Cooksey, ready to kick off another fun episode today. What's happening, Big Bill? Oh man, just uh, enjoying January here in
0: Tennessee, brother.
2: Well good, I hope you're finding some ducks finally. I know it's been a struggle this year. We, we finally are. We have water, we have some ducks, and uh, so life is good at the moment. Good, well maybe uh, when we talk about what we've been up to lately, you can give us a little bit more detail on that uh, well today I want to introduce our guest uh, today we have Ron Rohrbaugh and Ron is an author he's a professional wildlife biologist he's a freelance writer he's a traditional bow hunter and a conservationist and he's he's very uh, esteemed in these areas too I should say he's he's working as the director of conservation at at the Audubon for the mid-atlantic office he's a uh, he's an author of several books and and many different magazine publications. He's got a couple new books we're going to talk about. Uh, One is called Living Wild with the Orions. It's it's more geared towards a younger audience. And then the other one is a traditional bow hunter's path. And that really dives into a lot of bow hunting stuff. And Ron was uh, generous enough to share a copy of each of these with Bill and I. So we're lucky to have gotten to preview these. And so we'll we'll dive into those a little bit. First, I I want to ask you how you're doing, Ron, and, and say thanks for coming.
3: Yeah, I'm doing great this afternoon, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Aaron and Bill, for inviting me on the podcast. Bill, you said you were enjoying January. Uh, we're enjoying January here in Pennsylvania, too. We woke up uh, Sunday morning and, and went to take a shower, and all the pipes were frozen. So uh, it, we definitely got a strong feel of January, but... Uh, things are great here we finally got some snowfall and it feels like winter
2: well it's making the plumbers happy anyway
3: yeah that's right
2: yeah you got to keep those small businesses rolling uh well let's talk uh ron as we mentioned you know we like to hear what people have been up to outside we're nwf outdoors we we revel in all the cool things there is to do out there are to do outside and uh you know i know it's not too many seasons left as far as hunting goes but uh Sure, you've been up to something cool. So, we'll start with you. What have you been up to?
3: Yeah, I mean, our, our uh, archery season wraps up here that the main archery season does in about the third week of November. And then we roll into Thanksgiving and a firearm season. And then after that is one of my favorite seasons of the year. Um, and it's Pennsylvania has a late archery and black powder season. And that black powder mm, season cool. is primitive only, it's uh, flintlock. And, uh, you know, it's wow. it's been that way for, gosh, I don't know, probably 30 years. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, um, we had a, a hunting cabin up in the northern part of the state. And it was one of my favorite times a year to go with, with uh, my dad and the whole family. We'd go up to our cabin the day after Christmas, which is when the season kicked in, and uh, hunt deer with a flintlock. Just, just fantastic. And so that season just ended here this past weekend. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we've got some deer in the freezer, so I'm pretty happy.
2: That sounds awesome. My big game season has been over for quite some time, so I'm a little jealous, but, uh, what, what about you, Bill, to give us a little more detail on those fun duck adventures I know you're, you're still having. Absolutely. We have 13 more days of duck
0: season here, so I'm going to try to make the most of it. As you know, we were very dry most of the season. Um, we finally got water, uh, too much water at the moment, but I'm not complaining about that. We're getting some cold weather. Matter of fact, tomorrow evening is supposed to hit 17 degrees, which for us is that's pretty chilly. Um, yeah, so so things have really picked up, and folks in the area are a whole lot happier. You're seeing hunters at the gas stations in the morning instead of you know nothing happening. Uh, so that's instead good. of at the
2: bar I, at night, right? <laughs> exactly. And,
0: I, and this I'm really excited about this Thursday morning. You know, Tennessee actually has a sandhill crane season. Um, nice it's relatively new i think about 10 years old but mostly in eastern tennessee now we have them in west tennessee and i drew a sandhill crane tag so thursday morning i'm getting to go on a sandhill crane hunt with one of our uh, commissioners from the wildlife agency and some other folks i'm excited about that excellent the ribeye
2: in the sky as it's called that's right yeah have to share you'll have to share what you what you end up doing with it if you get one absolutely we'll, we'll put up a recipe
3: and the, the snow geese are sky carp, right? <laughs> I,
0: yeah, that's a pretty common, uh, they're actually pretty <laughs> doggone good to eat, believe yeah, it not. Yeah, they're not, not so but, bad. Yeah.
2: Well, awesome. Uh, I'll be quick cause those were maybe better stories than mine. I got a couple things. I got out for a couple of days of ice fishing with my family, caught our limiter rainbows over the last couple of weekends. Um, which was pretty nice got got on a little 20 30 acre lake with with not a soul in sight and had the dogs and they were running around and everybody had a, a big time if I was in the south bill I would say we all had a big time and then uh this weekend I uh I got with an old buddy cuz it was it was a long weekend with the Martin Luther King holiday and we spent uh one night just out in the woods sitting by a fire Having some having some beverages and and sharing stories and laughs and just connecting, he lives a few hours away. He's one of my dearest friends, and we just got a night out. and It was a full moon, and there was fresh snow on the ground, and it was spectacular. So, just good anything good outside is always worth doing. But Amen. Uh, let, <laughs> yeah, let's jump in, Ron, with all your your interesting things we want to talk about. And I am going to ask you because you sent us these books and. As soon as I opened it, you had, you had, you know, signed them for us and, and, and said something that really hit home with me because I talk about it, but we talk about it in, in different ways. We've heard every kind of way that, you know, hunters have contributed to conservation, but I think that's maybe not deep enough for what I think you meant when you said this and what I tend to understand and feel, and it's hard for me to articulate this and, You said in this book, you know, without hunters, there would be no wild places. And I just want you to take off starting there, if you wouldn't mind, because that to me is a little deeper than the standard, you know, Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, all all the things you hear that are mechanically true, but maybe don't have enough soul in them. And I think this, this touched on it a little better.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, on the surface, of course, it means hunters have done a lot to conserve wild places and make sure those wild places are there for all of us to enjoy through funding and hunting license sales and and our own work and policy and advocacy and all that. But at the deeper level, it means that hunters are some of the few people left, I think, in North America who really, really enjoy, appreciate, wild places at a deeper sort of philosophical level and not just from a, you know, looking through the glass, like looking into a fishbowl, but being participants in those wild places. I mean, when you climb into Dull sheep country and you're chasing a doll sheep in a place where maybe no one has ever set foot or very few people have ever set foot where you're about to to put your foot down on a rock somewhere, you know, and that sheep is just on the other side of the ridgeline That's, you know, that's a really deep experience. And and I think hunters, you know, because we're experiencing it, because we're acting as predators, I think we have a a little different relationship with the natural world in those wild places than many others do.
2: That's a good answer. And I've experienced the same kind of thing, you know, that feeling of almost... uh... A couple of times I've had it to where something almost felt like it was grabbing me from somewhere way back when some ancient thing I didn't even know I had in my body was, was kind of flaring up and it was hard to describe, but it's those primordial urges that, you know, as humans, we've been hunters since the beginning of time. And, uh, when, when you connect to that, especially if you've had an absence, I had an absence for a handful of years where I didn't get to hunt or fish much and, uh, when I came back to it, it was really reawakened. So I just thought we'd start off with that. And I think it leads a lot into some of the conversations we want to have with you. You know, you, you wrote a book about a traditional bow hunters path, which I think is interesting because that's obviously grounding us back to maybe the way it used to be done a little bit, a little bit closer. And then even this book, you know, you wrote to help connect young people and, and give them stories of conservation and hunting and connection to the outdoors I think you have, you know, a little bit more maybe insight studying these things than some do. And I guess the first question I'll ask you along those lines is just start. How would you get into conservation? How how did you just bloom and and get into this and decide to be a writer and and take off like you did?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the reasons that I started the new book series, Living Wild with the Orions, that's, that's targeted at, you know, young adults and kids. Because if you, if you ask people who are hunters or wildlife biologists or environmentalists of, of any stripe, basically, how they got into it, almost all of them will say they had some sort of mentor. They had some person who was also into the outdoors, and they had some place to go. They had some wild place, and that wild place might have just been an overgrown back alley, or it might have been a 40,000-acre state forest. It, you know It doesn't have to be a lot. Um, And I had two of those influences in my life. My dad was a hunter, Um, you know, as I was growing up, he hunted all over the country, all over the world. Um, And he took me along when he could. So, you know, from the time I was like four or five years old, you know, I was, you know, making my little legs chug along to keep up with him in the woods. And I, you know, I was hooked right away. I mean, who wouldn't be, you know, to, to get to tag along with your dad in the forest like that. And I had a grandmother who loved birds. And she had bird feeders all around her house. Um, you know, you could sit in the, the dining room, the kitchen, wherever you were, you could look out the window and see a bird. And so when I'd go to her house, you know, she'd tell me what the birds were. She kept a field guide right by the window. And, uh, you know, she'd always get frustrated with me because when I visited whatever I was eating that day, peanut butter, or jelly or whatever it was, it was always all through the raptor pages because I loved the hawks. And so I just sit and thumb through the field guide and all those looking at the hawks and the owls. Um, And so I just, you know, I came to it that way. You know, my, I had two good mentors and I just loved being outdoors. It's all I really cared about as I was a kid coming up.
0: That's uh, interesting. I I think I'm going to get ahead of us or ahead of myself right now, but you've mentioned mentors several times. And I think that's a lot of times one of the big gulfs right now for young people uh, to to get that outdoor experience and all um uh, that they'll have to push harder to get it than you or i had to because yeah. we had dads that just took us um uh, do you have any thoughts on that or have you know
3: you know, I get that question a lot and it's a really tough one. If you, if you don't have a mentor, you don't have a mentor. There are places to find them. Um, you know, NWF, I'm sure, you know, is a place to look for mentors. I work with backcountry hunters and anglers. You can look for mentors there, local sportsmen's clubs. And the other thing I try to do in my Living Wild series is to write in such a way that captures the parents too. So even if the parents of the kid reading the book or who are being read to, you know, are kind of on the line about hunting and fishing, I, I I want them, no pun intended, to get hooked. So that they say, yeah, I'm going to, Johnny, I am going to take you hunting. You know, I am going to do, I'm going to get into this too. And that's a, you know, that's a a tough mountain to climb. um, But somebody's got to do it. Some you know, we have to try, we're losing ground. Um, And and so, you know, one of the things that uh, is a goal for me is, is to, you know, influence the adults too.
2: I love that. It's, it's a huge part of it. And, you know. I think the other thing that's interesting that I think we don't talk about enough and maybe we should promote this is that, you know, if you ask somebody to be your mentor, if you go to one of those sportsmen's clubs, they kind of seem like a bunch of crotchety old guys a lot of times, but believe it or not, most of them are pretty generous. And and the reason they've joined that club is for that camaraderie and that connection. And they, they like that. And, you know, despite maybe their appearances or, or their actions from, from afar, Um, And it is an intimidating place. I can imagine being, you know, a young person from maybe a city and no, you know, kind of outdoor experience going into those settings. It might be tough, but, you know, you've probably experienced some of that, Ron. and, And do you feel like, you know, through the through the books and through the writing and through the kind of pushing people that direction that you've come up with, you know, a couple of things that if you're a young person, you're just dying to do it and you don't have a mentor. What do you do?
3: Yeah, I think it you know I think it's those things we described before and I do think you can do it on your own. I mean, millions of kids have over the years, you know, you know you can figure it out and you know we we have a tendency to point the finger at the internet as sometimes a bad thing, you know, screens are bad for kids because they're not going outside. But there's also far more information available to kids today on the internet than we had available to us as we were growing up. And I think if, you know, if you take a book like Echo in the Living Wild series and you get that to light a fire under a kid and then they're able to go onto the internet and do some, do some research on their own. I do think it's possible for kids to, you know, to, to make their own way. Um, When it comes to firearms, you know, all of that gets more complicated, but, but certainly they can get into the outdoors in a way that's that's not just you know looking into the fishbowl
2: well let's let's take a chance to talk about this book series the living wild with orions and and maybe even we talked a little bit about you reading something and i know we're curious we haven't had anybody read anything of theirs on on our podcast yet so i think we're anxious for that but maybe you (laughs) can set the stage a little with the characters and and you know what what you're trying to convey here a little and then give us that opportunity to hear from from the author's mouth
3: yeah i'm i'm happy to do that i'll i'll uh, take the first take the 10,000 foot view and tell you a little bit about you know where i was coming from when i started the series and and what it's all about um so you know i have two young children i have a son who's about ready to turn 8 and a daughter who is 5 and as i you know read to them at night and during the day I realized pretty quickly that there's not a lot of good outdoor literature for kids. Um, you know, there's some stuff going back, you know, if you look at some of the Gary Paulson stuff, books like Hatchet and and Gene Craighead George, My Side of the Mountain, you know, there is some, some stuff, uh, you know, Where the Red Fern Grows, a fantastic book that gets kids excited. But over the last 20 to 30 years, there's really been a, a big gap in children's literature focused on the outdoors. And especially that represents hunting in a sort of sustainable back to the land way that focuses on food, especially. You know, that's a big thing for me is thinking about how we sustain ourselves through hunting. And so I bring that a lot into the book. So I invented this family named the O'Rions um, and they live on the Allegheny Front in Pennsylvania And they're a family who lives close to the land. They hunt, they fish, they gather for fun as a family, but also as a way of life. And so the series focuses on the the adventures of the hero in the story is Echo Orion. He's 11 years old. And, you know, what he gets into as part of a hunting family and as part of a family who's not just hunters, but people who think of themselves as environmental stewards and are really conservationists at heart. I mean, hunting is is a part of the story, but it's only a small part of the story. So I like to say that the book isn't, isn't necessarily about hunting. It's a story about people who hunt and care for the land. Because I want some kid or parent who's not a hunter to pick this up and say, wow, this book's about hunters, but look what they did. Look at the cool stuff they did. Look at how they care for our environment and how they're, they're stewards for the world. I, you know, I really want that piece of it to come out. So the, the first book in the series um, is is titled Echo, and it's about Echo's rite of passage in his family to become what they call a sure enough mountain man. And, you know, on this sure enough mountain man voyage, He has to go into the forest for several days on his own and hike and, and, you know, sleep overnight. Um, It's a little bit like a Native American vision quest. And uh, he, you know, I won't give the whole story away, but, uh, you know, prior to heading out there, he gets some tutelage from a a local Native American woman named Luna, uh, who's a little wacky. Um, And uh, Echo ends up having some trouble in the woods and and gets himself into a, a genuine wilderness survival situation. Um and, and would bring out a lot of bushcraft and survival technique and hunting as part of his experience. And if I can I do a little right. excerpt if you'd like to.
0: Yeah, please. I want to hear more about Luna.
3: Luna's great. I, I uh I didn't anticipate it, but you know, as people read the books uh, the book and I get reviews, um Luna is by far and away their favorite character. Everybody loves Luna. So let's see here. Um, I'm going to give you a little, read a little excerpt here. Um, This is probably three quarters of the way through the book. Um, Echo is about five or six days in. He's in bad shape. He's starving. Um, And he's lucky enough to come upon the scene of a group of coyotes that have just taken down a deer. And he sees this as a source of food, because, of course, you know, if he can intervene, then, you know, he's able to to feed himself. And so uh, he's he's kind of inner coming upon this scene. Um, He's already kind of in this in the scene where the coyotes have taken down the deer um, where we're going to pick up here. At the sight of Echo, the subordinate coyotes feeding on the smaller buck retreated into the forest. Why wouldn't they? They had full bellies and didn't need to tangle with Echo. Old One Ear and his girl didn't see it that way. One Ear's the alpha coyote that Echo has encountered a couple of times. They leapt between Echo and the injured buck. The alphas took on an aggressive posture, with their necks outstretched and noses tipped up. White curved canine teeth gleamed as the two worked a crisscross pattern to keep Echo off guard. When they were just 15 feet away, within easy range to pounce on Echo and tear him to shreds, the crisscrossing stopped. Old One Ear crept forward and crouched low, coiling his legs to spring for Echo's throat. Echo did not run. Instead, he drew his bow and took aim, ready to release an arrow into the alpha's soft underbelly when he lunged from mere feet. Caw! Ca. A crow hollered overhead, and at the same instant, a puff of wind hit Echo on the back, carrying his human scent straight to Old One Ear. The old male instantly registered recognition of a predator, predator greater than himself. Under pumping legs, the two alphas forfeited the buck and sped off to join the rest of the pack. Now it was just Echo and the buck, whose knees were beginning to buckle from his injuries. Echo was already at full draw, and he knew what had to be done. He picked an imaginary spot on the buck's heaving chest, just behind his shoulder. The self-posed string let out a hushed whoosh when Echo let it slip from his fingers. The dogwood arrow and its stone tip took the buck cleanly. In just five seconds, Echo watched the light go from the buck's eyes and the stillness of death come over his body. Killing was never easy, and this time was no different. Echo realized how badly he was shaking. He needed to rest. He went to the fallen buck and lay beside it, one hand on the deer's warm hide, the other still clutching his bow. Echo closed his eyes for a long time, saying nothing, thinking nothing, just letting the feelings wash over him. Then he looked directly into the glazed-over eyes of the buck and said, thank you in a strong, steady voice.
0: Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. I have to ask Ron, um, as a writer uh, and and you're, when you're writing stories like this, how much of it is coming from your experiences, either as growing up as an outdoorsman or, or bringing up your kids or, from other people, you know, I mean, how much is drawn from real life and how much
3: I would say that it's a really good question. And I would say that almost all of it is drawn from real life. So it might not be the exact way that it happened, but you know, a real life experience inspired, you know, something, I mean, there's, there's no way to know how a buck's eye looks as he's dying how he falls, what, there's no way to know that unless you've been that close to see it and to, to feel it and to have those own, you know, echoes, feelings washed over him. My feelings, you know, all sorts of conflicting feelings have washed over me many times when I've looked into the glazed over eye of a dead animal. Um, you know, I, I think you have to experience that to be able to write about it.
2: Yeah, there's some that, at least for, I think most of us, all of us on this call and, and many beyond it, it, that profound thing that just happened gives you so much appreciation. I think if you're thinking of it right and gives you just such a reverence, I mean, I, I I haven't, you know, until I took down an elk, for instance, I'd seen them plenty of times from far, but to hold one in your hands and to think about that as food and to, to just to have that, that moment come when it, you know, when it, when it's over and when, you know, and then the work begins and there's that, it's just such a profound moment. And I don't, I don't know if there'll ever be, uh, you know, prophetic or, or wise enough words to describe really what it is to anybody who hasn't experienced it and have, have them truly understand it's, it's unique. It's powerful. It's, it's, it's unreal in a lot of ways. And, um, particularly I find, you know, Something as large as an elk—it's just so profound how big it is, and how you know you've got this critter down, and then the work starts setting in too. You start going, "Here we go." Um, so <laughs> yeah. there's that part to it. Uh, let's but, let's but even go,
0: something as small as a turkey, Aaron. I mean, I watched. Yeah, I don't want to diminish that. And,
2: uh, I'm not trying
0: you know, to. Sorry. Yeah. The, the labored breathing and shakes and everything else as a turkey's coming in. You know, yeah. it's a it's really an interesting thing we do and we love yeah Yeah, every time
3: it's one of the things I mean there there are a lot of reasons I became enamored with traditional bow hunting but those feelings we're talking about are one of them because it's really a close quarters game you're really close to an animal when you take that shot and you better be prepared because you're going to be able to see, you know, the liquid of that eye. You can see the, you know, whiskers twitching. You can see breathing. You can see all sorts of things that make that animal something other than a foam target. It's a real live organism that you're about to release an arrow on. And you better be prepared for that when you do it. And it's, it's both good and bad. I mean, I call it hunter's paradox. You know, I have both good and bad feelings about it.
2: Well, Ron, let's, let's talk about the traditional bow hunters path. I mean, we've kind of touched a little bit on, on your draw to it, but how did you end up going from, you know, your upbringing and getting into it to saying, I'm going to start building bows and I'm going to really start going down the path of, you know, getting as deep as I can really into this with telling other people about it and really taking off with it. I'm curious how you got there.
3: Wow. I I got there like, five gallons of gasoline poured on a brush fire. I mean, I, I, I was lit up right away. (laughs) I mean, it's told this story so many times. And I, in the, I don't know, maybe the early nineties, 1992, maybe. Um, I injured my back pretty badly. My head messed it up at work. And then I fell down a set of steps. And then the, the clincher came when I tried to lift a buck, over a woven wire fence in that late muzzleloader season. We started off the conversation talking about, and I really destroyed my back. And I wasn't a bow hunter at that point. Um, I, I was, you know, I was always a gun hunter. I grew up in a, in a firearms family, and I was in the hospital. And my girlfriend at the time um, would bring me stacks of magazines to keep me occupied while I was in traction in the hospital. And one of the magazines she brought me was traditional bow hunter magazines. And I, she just brought she one copy that she got somewhere. And I read that thing over and over and over again, laying in the hospital. And it, it was about archery and it was about traditional bow hunting that got me stirred up. But it was also the way the articles had been written and that there was a real reverence for the craft of bow hunting and the, you know, the animals and the wild places in a way that I hadn't really read in other sorts of hunting stories. And I was immediately hooked. And so, you know, I, by the time I got out of the hospital, I already had big plans for, you know, getting a recurve and, and doing my thing. And and honestly, I I've just been on that traditional bow hunters path ever since that's been, you know, 30 some years ago now. Uh, and, and I've been doing it. I, You know, I we talked about getting close earlier. Um, You know, one of the things that really this is a little bit um, philosophical, I suppose, but it's one of the only forms of hunting where your energy, the energy from your own body, goes into killing that animal. There's not there's no gunpowder involved. There's no um, cam on the, you know, on the bow. It's all the energy from you pulling that bowstring transferred to the wood in the bow, transferred to the arrow into the animal. I mean, throwing a spear maybe is only, you know, is the next closest thing. And there's something about that connection that has always excited me. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I've been doing it for 30 some years and I, I'm just as excited when bow season rolls around now as I was 30 years ago. I just love it.
2: I love it. What I keep getting a feeling of here is just kind of a, an intimacy, right? Uh, that, that's what it is. It's, a, it's almost like a, a drawing in closer in every way. And I can imagine, and, and maybe you can expand on this too. You're making these bows too. So you know, what's going through your head when you're making this bow? And is it, is it more about, you know, for the, for the function of the bow or is there, you know, I'm sure there's stories with each one, you know, I mean, they're just, when you craft something like that and you take the time to do that, they're all unique. They all have their own feel and story. And if you wouldn't mind unpacking that for us a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm not articulating the question probably good enough, but. No, absolutely. So concept.
3: yeah, so I have a, a company called, a small company called Lifecycle Gear, and uh, I have two, two different sorts of, of pathways that people can get into bows through my company. One is that I get other bowyers to make bows for me that um, where I hand select all the woods. They're all native North American woods. They do the bow building um, to my specs, and then I sell them as part of my Lifecycle Gear um, uh, business. And then I also build, and we don't have to get into all the details of this, but I build um, something called an ILF riser, um, which is a, a gorgeous gorgeous wood riser um, that my customers can buy limbs for. And a- any ILF limb, ILF stands for International Limb Fitting, will fit onto my risers. So the thing that, that to, you know, to get back to our intimacy here, um, you know, the thing that, that, that turns my crank about all of that is that... You know, I only build bows from native North American woods. Lots of, of you know, bulliers around the country and, and, you know, big manufacturers like Bear Archery, they use um, tropical hardwoods, you know, woods that are coming from Central and South America, some woods coming from Africa. And the reason they use those woods is a they're beautiful and b they're very dense, so they're nice and heavy um, to form the riser of the bow. You want some good center mass there. I, you know, one from a conservation standpoint, there's a big there's a big and not good environmental footprint there associated with unsustainable harvesting of woods like cocobolo, even illegal harvesting. And then getting that back into the United States, that sort of thing. So I was never, I never wanted to support that sort of an industry. But the other part of it was that when I walk into my woods, you know, if I go, you know, behind my house here to hunt, I'm in an oak hickory forest. And it feels right to me to carry a bow that's made from oak and hickory. You know, I don't want to carry a bow that's made from zebra wood, you know, into my local forest to hunt. I think there's some connection there. For me and for a lot of other guys who are into traditional bow hunting to kind of, you know, either connecting with the wildlife, but you're connecting with the forest as well by using something that came from that forest.
0: Okay, I'm going to take us in a little different direction than Aaron's going to pull us back, but uh, maybe... Traditional bow hunting and I'm I bow hunt a little bit, but I'm not even on the traditional front. I'm just, I don't bow hunt much, but I'm going to assume that the woodsmanship required for traditional bow hunting and the things you talk about in your book would be immensely beneficial to regular bow hunters, rifle hunters, you know, anyone who's trying to learn better woodsmanship how to get closer to animals. I mean, that's the name of the game, no matter what gear you use. Right.
3: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I I always, I always had trouble getting into things like small game hunting, especially, you know, rabbits or pheasants, because it was all, it always felt fast paced to me. And what I always loved about hunting was to learn everything that made a particular place tick. Like what, what makes this place work ecologically and that's the sort of woodsmanship you need to be successful at traditional bow hunting. At least to be consistently successful, is you really have to learn a place. Um, you have to understand what you know. What's what's fall? What are deer feeding on in the fall? Early fall. What are they moving to in mid fall? What are they turning to in later fall? How do they change their bedding areas when the leaves come down? You know all of these sorts of nuances that are critical in order to get within fifteen yards on a regular basis um, to take an ethical shot with a traditional bow. And yeah, all that, that woodsmanship stuff is, is so important.
2: Yeah. I like that too. I, I saw there was a few, few um, chapters here that, that touched on that too, you know, buck fever, a traditional bow hunters biggest demon. Oh, yeah. That was one of the ones I was interested in and I haven't gotten to unpack that all the way, but ambush posture, you know, balanced bow hunting, seeing the world more like a deer. A lot of things that I think every outdoors person, every hunter, particularly who's trying to pursue ungulates could learn from, you know, what, give us more of a sense too, Ron, if you, if you want, you know, what was the, who was the audience? You know, were you trying to talk to, to bow hunters that were that already did, just needed to learn more was the idea to grab new people, you know, incite people that are already bow hunting, get more into conservation, or you know, where where were you aimed at? I guess with this with this uh, book.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a broad approach. I, it's the book is twenty four chapters, and the first twelve are sort of how to, and they're pretty basic how to, like you know, if someone is a is a you know, it's been a compound bow hunter for many years, and they want to get into traditional bow hunting. You know, that was certainly an audience for me. How do you go about, you know, moving from a compound to to a recurve? So, you know, that first er that early part of the book was really getting people into traditional bow hunting who, you know, maybe always had it in the back of their mind, but thought it was it was would be too difficult or they just didn't know where to start. And then the second 12 chapters of the book are just good bow hunting stories. You know, there's stories from my hunts around North America and in Africa. And then, you know, what I think of that ties all everything together all 24 chapters is I try to weave in a lot of, you know, my own um knowledge and experiences around wildlife biology and conservation. I mean, it's what I've done my whole life as a career. Um, and I feel like I owe it to my readers to kind of weave some of that into my storytelling and into my how to stuff, you know, to make it a little richer and a little deeper.
2: Perfect. I think that's, that's what I was, that's what I was interested in. And I, I was hoping you'd say that actually, and maybe this is a, this is the right time because you mentioned it, you know, you spent a lot of time at Cornell, you know, the, 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 probably the leading authority, at least that that I'm aware of in the world of with birds. And I have many Cornell authored bird guides and, you know, or Cornell, I don't know if they're authored by Cornell, the the, the university, but by people associated with and, um, you know, Sibley and all these folks have been associated at different times. I, I was one of the things I really wanted to ask you is what, well, first about your, your career with birds and, you know, some of the work you do with with birds and forest management and so on. But, you know, what birding has taught you about hunting and vice versa and how you've connected those two things, because I've found the two of them to be highly, you know, connected. I've learned a lot of things about watching, you know, about pursuing animals from trying to just see birds and, and figure out which ones they are and learn their calls and all those kinds of things. So Curious how you can just maybe broadly underst- give us the understanding of maybe how birding helped you do better at hunting.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's at least two axes there that you're getting at. One is sort of mechanistic in that, you know, finding birds and writing them down on a list, or taking a picture of them, or just you know logging it in your brain and saying, "Hey, I, you know, I found a." Well, you know, I don't know, whatever it happens to be, a scarlet tanager or a wood thrush, um, you know, that's hunting. You know, you're not pulling the trigger on something, but it takes real skill and the same sorts of skills that you might use to find ducks or find turkeys or find deer. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of the the mechanism is the same in terms of, of how it satisfies you. You know, I think... Sh- it enriches the outdoor experience. Birds are everywhere. You know, we, you know, everywhere you go, you're going to see or hear birds. That's not true necessarily of mammals. You know, there are, you know, in terms of biomass, there are probably, you know, white-footed mice, for example, might be the, the largest biomass in a forest. How many white-footed mice do you see when you go out hunting? Not very many. How many chickadees, crows, tufted tit mice do you see when you go hunting? A lot. Because they're visible. And the other cool thing that I just love about birds that, that, you know, gets people turned on and they don't even know it is that birds sing in the same, almost the same exact frequency range as human hearing. And birds can see color, unlike mammals who mostly see in a sort of monochrome black and white. And so those are two ways in which. You know, us as humans, the ways we can appreciate and interact with birds that we can't interact with mammals. We hear them sing. We can appreciate they have complicated songs that perfectly match our hearing. And we can see their bright colors because they can see bright colors. They need bright colors as part of their courtship and, and breeding. And so, it, you know, I always say this makes makes kids laugh. I mean, what, what did two dogs do when they first meet each other? sniff each other's butts right Sniff, yeah. <laughs> yeah because mammals live in this scent-based world and we probably lived in that scent-based world at one time too we don't you know we don't live in a scent-based world anymore we live in one that's auditory and visual just like birds do and so I think there's a connection there that we just don't get with other forms of wildlife
2: Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marcia Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>
0: On birds, um, I noticed in your, your bio, you work quite a bit on the ivory-billed woodpecker. And uh, down in my part of the world, you know, we supposedly found one about 20 years ago. Um, did you, were you involved with that search, and, and how did that all go down?
3: Yeah, I, I was involved in that search. In fact, I led a lot of the searches on behalf of Cornell University um, in arkansas and other states in the southeast so the last accepted well let's back up a second L- many listeners might not know what an ivory-billed woodpecker is um ivory-billed woodpecker was the the second largest woodpecker um in north america it looks a lot like a bird you might be familiar with called the pileated woodpecker um, it was never common and its range is the the southeastern united states in bottomland forest you know roughly from florida West to East Texas and then north up into Arkansas. The last truly accepted sighting of the Ivory Bill was in Louisiana, um, in a place called the Singer Tract, in 1944. Between 1944 and 2004, there have been lots of people who've claimed to see Ivory Bill woodpeckers. I mean, there are just lots of sightings. Um, Some seemed legitimate. Many, many, many of them did not seem to be legitimate. And then there was a sighting in 2004 um, in the Cache River National Wildlife Refuge in Arkansas that was by someone I worked with at Cornell University, Tim Gallagher, um, and his friend Bobby Harrison. Those two guys weren't just, you know, folks out, you know, goofing around in the bayou and claimed to see an ivory-billed woodpecker. These were guys who were birders, and they knew what they were looking for, and they, they knew what they saw. And so their observation kicked off what became a six- or a seven-year odyssey to try to find the ivory-billed woodpecker. I mean, I, I say this. I don't know if this is true or not, but it's it has to be close that the search for the Ivory Bill in the early 2000s was probably the the largest search in the world for an endangered or potentially extinct species. species. And so, you know, we we mounted all, we used uh, auditory means to try to record them. We used game cameras. We searched by canoe and kayak. And, you know, we had a number of sightings. Uh, We had one video None of it could be completely confirmed. Um, And in the end, you know, my conclusion is that at least in those places where we put in, you know, heavy search effort, and we can get into the statistics of that, you know, what I would think of as as adequate search effort, I I don't know how we would have missed ivory-billed woodpeckers if they were there, um, especially if it was a family group.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I remember how hectic things were because I had a, a duck club right in that area, and of course we were scared to death hunting season would be shut down, yeah. and there was talk about that, and and some guides actually turned to guiding people who would go out in the black swamp and look for ivory billed woodpeckers. And
3: yeah, we used to put our teams up at the at the duck clubs um, because you know they they weren't getting a lot of duck hunters, and they loved us because you know, of course we, we come in there, we pay ahead of time. We, you know, we have a lot of fun and um, I'm sure you've been in a few of those places. They're well run with a lot of alcohol and a lot of food. And so uh, <laughs> we, we never complained much.
0: <laughs> okay. We all want our kids to follow in our footsteps in the outdoors, obviously. I mean, that's every father dreams of that. Um, as, as a parent or a mentor of young people, uh, do you have any advice on how to to get them to follow along and and how to how to usher them through.
3: Boy, that's such a great question. And I, you know, I have friends who have kids who are of hunting age, and some, you know, you know, adult kids, and some of them have followed in their parents' footsteps, and, and some of them have not, um, despite you know what I thought were parents, you know, good, you know, good parenting, and, and you know, I think kids will either gravitate to it or they won't, you know, is the, is the really short answer. But I think the longer answer is be patient. Um, I think that, you know, kids need time in the outdoors to, to come to it on their own. You've got to get them in the outdoors. You've got to, you've got to put a bow or a gun or a fishing rod in their hands. Um, but you you can't push them. I mean, you know, we've all seen the dad who every two steps turns around and and barks at his his son or daughter because they're making too much noise. You know, I certainly had to to change my expectations when I had kids and took them out about what we were going to accomplish. You know, we weren't going to sit in in a blind all day. We were going to sit in a blind for maybe only 20 minutes. You know, we weren't going to walk two miles. We were going to walk 100 yards. You know, all of those things, I think you just have to be patient, um, adjust your expectations, and above all, make it fun. You know, keep it fun for the kids, and, and they'll they'll remember it as a fun experience, and they'll want to come back to it.
2: That reminds me of some some funny things when I was getting my boy into hunting. He was really little. We made up names, you know, carry Crunch a lot. You know, I had different names for the steps he would take when he was making a lot of racket and trying to teach him how to focus and not, you know, avoid certain things. You don't step on the leaves. You step on the rocks. You don't step on the, those kinds of things. But that I have a kind of an extension of that question or, or, a, or a different view to it that I had here. I wanted to ask you, too. And, you know, with your with your thinking on young people in these books, what do you say to, you know, you're at a you're at a show and, and, and kids are asking about your book and they've never hunted before, you know, what's the first thing you think kids ought to know of when they're considering hunting? You know, what is that kind of hook, if you will, that maybe makes them think, you know, maybe I'd try that. I think this is, and I, and I keep coming back to this. And I think Bill does too, for this reason, because I think that's something that we all grapple with so much where we feel like a little bit of a, a fleeting feeling with young people that, that that we're losing some of what we all love so much. And and so we keep kind of wanting – and maybe it's too much pressure to put on you, Ron. We keep kind of wanting that that silver bullet, that magic thing that's like, man, if we could just do more of that, then the kids would be there.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure there is a silver bullet, but I, I I'll – Toss out an answer. We'll see see how silver it is. Um, one of the things that I've seen is that kids today already know an awful lot about wildlife. They watch, you know, shows about wildlife. They learn things on the internet. They have apps. Sometimes they know more about wildlife in in Africa or some tropical forest um, than they know about what's going on in their backyard or in the state forest down the road. And so I, you know, the first thing for me is to make it cool. Like what is, what is so cool? You know, what does a barred owl say? You know, what does a great horned owl eat? Um, You know, I, you know, bring in some cool facts, really kind of, you know, brush up on your own natural history so that you can bring that kid in with excitement about what's going on. And maybe you don't need to know every detail, but, you know, when you roll that rock or log over and there's a redback salamander there, knowing that it's a redback salamander and being able to get your, your kid excited or, or any kid excited because they can put a name to something. That's so important for a kid. They have to put it. They want to put a name to it. What is that? That's the first step. That's cool. Dad, what is that? And so getting that excitement going, I think, is number one. Number two for me is, we've talked about this a couple times already, getting kids to understand that they can participate in nature. They don't have to just, this is is like a, a different stages. First, you're getting them excited. Then you're getting them to understand that I don't just have to look at it. I can participate in it. I can fish. I can hunt. If that's not for me, I can go birding. That's a level of participation that's deeper than just kind of walking around and and really not knowing what's around you. So being able to participate in a way that's deeper than just seeing it. And then the third thing for me is food. Everybody eats. every, Every person eats. And even kids have a really remarkable understanding, if you teach it to them, of where their food comes from. And teaching them that hunting and fishing is a part of getting our food. It's part of our life. It's part of what we do. And you don't have to go to the grocery store and buy something wrapped in foam and cellophane. You can go to the woods and get it as part of this very sustainable process that we've been doing for eons. It's part of. It's in our. You know. It's in our DNA. It's part of what we do, as you know, predators and, and omnivores. Um, and I and they get that. I mean, I know that sounds heavy, but kids get that.
0: Good stuff. Now, I started to say I'm going to put you on the spot, but I don't think I am because you're obviously a storyteller. But let's hear your favorite whitetail story, whether it's hunting or not, but your
2: favorite whitetail story. And we know you're a whitetail fanatic, so we had to ask. We had, We always got to get those in on it.
3: Hey, ay 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 favorite like
2: <laughs> Thick corn, huh?
3: <laughs> oh boy. All right. Well, I'll I'll toss one out here. Um is this what I want. I'll tell you two. I'll tell one one more recent one from a while back. The first one more recent one since we've been talking about kids will be be short. And it's actually just from this year. Um I hunted hard this year with with recurve bow all season. And I just did not have any, any luck on a good buck. I didn't even see many good bucks. I, I killed two does um, and the good bucks, the mature bucks just seemed to elude me. And so on the last day of the season, um, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was hunting this sort of nondescript little bench on the side of the mountain. And the reason I was there is I kept seeing deer from a distance go over that bench and they were eating something. And I slipped up in there in the morning, I waited until it got daylight, and I started looking around. And what I realized was that in the evening, at night, when we were getting a little bit of frost, clusters of wild grapes were dropping out of the tree canopy onto the forest floor. And so does and bucks, before they were heading to their bedding area, were coming up onto this bench where all these grapevines were. And feeding on these these dried up grape clusters, and they were just devouring them. And so I set up right away, and sure enough, I had deer all over me. Um, and no good bucks, but you know, I, I, toward getting toward the end of the morning, a decent little seven point came out and gave me a good shot at just a little over twenty yards, which for me is a long shot with a recurve bow in the in the woods. Um, it was a great shot. I use a climbing tree stand. I I came down and I never even went to look for the deer. I just got out of there. My son, who's seven now, um, was at his grandmother's place, you know, about 15 or 20 minutes away. And so I drove and got him and we went straight to where I shot the buck from the tree. And I said, "Okay, his name is Rex. I said, "Okay, Rex, you're up, man. Find this deer for me. And uh, he set out, you know, he's tracked deer in the past, but this is the first one I've really just said, I'm not going to help you, You're, you you got to do this. And uh, he didn't miss a beat. He, he took me right to it. Um, and I was so proud of him. And it was just this, it was not a big buck, but, you know, I've been telling everybody it's the biggest buck I ever shot because I was so, so proud of him um, and so proud of, of that moment. It's a memory I, you know, I'll certainly never forget. So that, that was a good one. Um, That's awesome. I might need some lessons. <laughs> some tracking lessons. <laughs> this next story involves tracking, too. Um, I've only shot a handful of Pope and Young Buck uh, with, with a traditional bow, and this was one of them. It was probably, oh gosh, a long time ago, 15 years ago. Um, uh, it was very cold. Um, it was November 16th. I remember the date heard a deer walking behind me and it sounded. have you ever heard caribou leg tendons click when they walk? They click, click, click. And (laughs) this was, they do, they make this clicking sound. And I thought, what in the world is that? And it was this buck walking behind me through a frozen over swamp. And each click was, it's just hooves coming down on the solid ice. Tick, tick, tick. And I just took a chance And uh, I did a little calling sequence very quietly, and I heard the tick, tick, tick coming around in a half circle around me, um, came in front of my stand, and I made what would be described as not a perfect shot. Um, It was quartering away and angled up through the the paunch into the vital area, and this buck lit out into this beaver pond area, was just flooded with a few little islands. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I could not find that buck. And I decided I just had to pull out and and wait and come back in the morning. And um, I brought a friend of mine with me and we went in and we started looking. And I'll never forget this. The only place we didn't look was this little island of high ground that was completely surrounded by a pond a small lake pond and it was frozen over but not hard enough that you could walk on it and i finally said we have, dude we just have to go we have to go over there and see if my buck is on that island and so i started in and the water immediately rose up to my groin ice cold and i'm like oh man i don't this might not have been a great idea and I turn around and look at my friend, and he at the same moment the water had risen to the same level. And I'll never forget the look on his face when that ice cold water <laughs> washed up waist high. And we just shook our heads, like, "What are we doing? We're crazy." We get to the island, and it's not that big. And it turns out there's no buck there. You know, we're now we're cold, very cold. We have to wade back across to the to the higher ground, and finally I come to my senses. I had this idea in my head that this, this area is full of cover. It's beaver ponds. It's thick. It's forested. A wounded buck is never going to leave this spot. It's about 20 acres of nastiness. Why would a buck leave? So I, we just kept searching and searching and searching the same ground over and over again. And finally I said to my friend Lance, what if he just crossed that, there's a little open hayfield there. What if he just crossed that little hay field and went into that next woodlot?" And so we're seven hours into searching for this deer at this point. This is like this is a long affair. And we cross the hayfield and we start to make this grid search in the next wood lot and bingo. There's my buck. Laying there, you know, right, right, just could have found him in 15 minutes probably. But it was a real lesson for me and not making assumptions about what you think an animal might do just because you think you know a little something about wildlife biology or deer biology or deer behavior. Um, and so it's one of my one of my proudest deer. It's a, it's a beautiful buck, um, you know, with a, a search with a deer friend um, and just a time I won't forget.
2: Thanks for sharing that, Ron. We can never get enough good hunting stories. Those are always... Everybody likes listening to those. That one's in the book,
3: um, uh, a traditional bowhunter's path.
2: Oh, good. Go. I'll have to I'll have to read more details on that. Um, we're we're getting towards our time here, and uh, we've probably not covered everything we, we could and should cover. There's a couple more things I wanted to ask you, but uh, I guess the last thing we'll, we'll ask you is just: Is there anything else you want to tell us before you go? And um, I should also say, we'll put uh, links to to your to your work here and the show notes and make sure folks know how to get your books and, and those kinds of things. Um, but, but any wise words to leave us with before we let you get back about your, your evening here?
3: Well, I don't know about wise words from me, but, um, maybe it'd be, be, come full circle. You know, we, we started off this conversation, um, you know, with you kind of repeating that little quote, you know, without hunters, there would be no wild places. And so, yeah. you know, we've got to make sure that we continue to have hunters and people who care about protecting and managing those wild places. And, you know, we all know the story of the, you know, the decline of the number of hunters. Um, you know, we all know that, you know, the efforts that state agencies and lots of other folks, you know, um, NWF included, are doing to kind of recruit new hunters, um, you know, into our ranks. And I, you know, I think... I've come to the come around to the thinking that you, we're not going to have this legacy for our kids or our grandkids or even the ecological integrity that we need as a people to survive. We're just not going to have it. We're not going to have clean water, we're not going to have clean air, we're not going to have forest resources unless we protect those places. And we can't protect those places unless we bring new people into the fold. And so, you know, I, I, guess I would just end by saying, you know, not everybody can, but if, if there's a way you can, you can take a kid out, if you can, you know, you're, you're somewhere where you can talk to a kid about the outdoors, maybe you can't get them into the forest, but you can somehow, you know, light the fuse for some young person, um, do what you can do to get them out there because I think that's, you know, we've been saying this for a long time. You know, what I'm saying is not new. Um, I'm just trying to, to draw a few lines under it and give it an exclamation mark as someone who is a hunter, a conservationist, and someone who's worked, you know, his entire life as a professional wildlife biologist. I see it from all sides. Um, and, And I really think we're reaching a point where you know, we, we have to do better.
0: You're absolutely right. And um, we do have to do better. And we, there are a lot of people out there working at it, as you mentioned. Uh, and I'll even throw in our state affiliates right now that uh, in many of the states in the U.S., that's a place people can go to get some help learning about the outdoors and about conservation how about you aaron do you have any wise words
2: listen to ron, <laughs> ron, ron ron's writing for you telling you good stuff I, I i couldn't beat that i appreciate you coming on ron and uh, i just uh, I, I value it so much the things you're espousing and trying to to help people get to that that you know the food the connection to to wild animals conservation I just think uh, we can't get enough of it. We can't have too many people, you know, thinking that way. And hopefully this conversation will get some more people thinking about it and reading your books and, and we'll be inspired to, to do some of that stuff. And just, just thank you so much for what you're doing and coming on.
3: Well, yeah. And, and thank you so much. I mean, this is, you know, for people like me who are, you know, trying to spread the word and who are are authors and have books out there, these sorts of podcasts are really important. And so I, you know, truly from the bottom of my heart i really appreciate this opportunity to talk with your audience and to talk with both of you it's it's really great thank you
2: we're trying to let we're trying to let bill sign off here and he's, he's... <laughs> he's you he's having it a little bit like, of like oh crap, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh Ron, Bill's Bill's been with us for a handful of episodes now. He's my new co-host. And so I'm trying to, you know, get him in a little bit more on the action here sometimes, but uh sometimes he likes it and sometimes he doesn't. But uh we'll leave folks with that. We we appreciate uh you coming, Ron, and uh we'll let I'll ask Bill to say anything wise he has left for us before we before we take us all the way out here. I, I have nothing of wisdom to say.
3: Um, I bet that's not true.
0: <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it, Ron.
3: Yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation too.
2: Well, thanks, gentlemen. Happy trails. We'll let you go. Uh, and uh, just keep doing what you're doing and get more out into the woods. It's worth it. Take care, guys. Thank you. We are NWF Outdoors. Outdoors.